One of the themes and one of the things that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, how do we go deeper into the text? As Christians, as Western Christians, we've become so focused on the text of Scripture and then focus on the text of Scripture in an intellectual way that we sort of skim the surface of this text. We, we just lay across the literal meaning and there it's like being on a raft in the water, you know, in the ocean. We're aware of what's going on at the surface, but there's this whole world down there with all these living things and all this stuff going on. And if we are willing to dive deeper down, there's all sorts of layers of meaning that can help us in ways that we can't even imagine. Last few weeks we were talking about this Jewish practice of moving deeper into the scriptures. They call it Midrash, or Midrash. And it means to inquire, it means to seek, it means to search. It's where the rabbis go beneath the literal meaning of the scripture, and they look for deeper connections. They're looking at the text from their ancient past, now our really ancient past, and they're making spiritual connections to truths that are still relevant today, they connect it to the context of what is happening today. This is where the scripture starts to come alive. This is where it becomes relevant. And the truth is, is that most Christian pastors do the same thing. We talked about this. You know, we try to make the scripture relevant. We connect it to things that are happening today. But we look at those as sermon illustrations. And the difference with the Jews are, in terms of Midrash, is that they are actually looking at this being a valid interpretation of the text that the metaphorical understanding of the text is just as important, in some cases more important, than the literal understanding of what the words actually say. And so, actually, they have four levels, but even just looking at these two can bring in so much more. Two weeks ago, we looked at each of the days of Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, and looked at the scriptures that are associated traditionally with those days of the week in Christianity. And we looked at them from a Midrashic point of view. We looked at them from what is a meaning underneath the meaning. And it was bringing out all this depth. Not only that, it was starting to outline for us a way of living life. And here's the key. Principles by which we make choices. Principles by which we choose. This is so key. How do we make choices if we don't have principles in place by which to make consistent choices that move our life in a constant direction, the direction we really want to go, the direction of our Lord and the, Lord, and the direction he's calling us? If we don't have these principles, we're, we're always going to be random with respect to our choices. Our choices are always going to look different in every context, and yet the principle remains the same. The principle is forever. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. It's that kind of thing. Looking underneath the surface context and text brings that into our consciousness, brings that into something that we can actually use. And what I wanted to do today is to pick up where we left last Sunday. Last Sunday, we talked about the Lamb of God. We talked about the cross. We talked about salvation, you know, the crucial issues of, of our faith. Because I'll tell you what, I get questions all the time, and I know Pastor Frank does, and, and, and Scott, and others, and you probably talk about this among yourselves, call into those radio talk show Bible Answer Man programs. Why is the Bible so violent? 
Why is it? Especially the Old Testament. What's going on there? And what is it about the cross? You know, Did God the Father really send his son to die as a blood sacrifice? Is that the kind of God that we serve? All of these questions are constantly coming up because Jesus is giving us such a different message. Jesus is talking about light and love and he's talking about relationship and he's talking about turning the other cheek and yet we have all these other images juxtaposed and it's really confusing. So today, I want to pick up from that thread, looking at the cross, but looking at it in a midrashic point of, from a midrashic point of view, in a midrashic way, to try to understand, is there another way that we can look at the cross? Not instead of, but in addition to that can not only start to give us a consistent view of the nature of the Father, the nature of the Father's love, how he loves. We were just singing that song, weren't we? How he loves us. How does he love us? How does he love us? And also to get principles by which we can make choices as we move forward in life. There are three basic images that scripture uses to describe the significance of the cross and the crucifixion and Jesus' death in the New Testament. And I want to go through those three. And if you take a look in your bulletins today, or the inserts, I've tried to, someone asked on Ask Friday, why don't we have outlines? Why don't we have more? I'm going to do a little bit more of an outline here. Just a little bit more. See if we can get that mnemonic stuff going here. We've got the Lamb of God, we've got the Lifted Up One, and we've got the Scapegoat. The three basic images metaphors that are used in scripture. And let's take a look at each one of them. You know, the first one, the Lamb of God, what is this referring to? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible story, if you're familiar with Exodus, Moses leading the people out of Egypt, the Pharaoh's not letting them go. He is adamant, he's steadfast, he's stubborn. They go through nine horrible plagues, which is darkness and boils and frogs and flies and locusts and all these things. And he's still not letting the people go. So finally, the Lord tells Moses to tell the people on a particular night, in the middle of the night, the angel of death is going to come by and going to kill the firstborn of every family, whether it's animal or human. But if you kill an unblemished lamb and you spread the blood on the lintel on the doorposts, then you will be spared. And so this idea of the paschal lamb coming from the word Pesach, which means Passover, of the Jews. The idea of an innocent one who dies in order that many will be saved. One dies so that many will be saved. One that dies unresistingly. In Jesus' case, willingly. But you see the connection point. You see what is happening. And John the Baptist makes that connection explicitly in John's Bible. If you take a look at John one twenty nine. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is actually doing a midrash here, isn't he? He's taking the truth, the story from the past of the Paschal Lamb, and he's applying it to Jesus here. He's taking a spiritual truth and applying it to where the people live so that they can understand the spiritual significance of what is going on. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is teacher. He's rabuni, what we would say rabbi. But he's functioning in this special way as the Lamb of God, as the one who will unresistingly, willingly lay down his life, the one for the many, 
to take away the sin of the world. And as we said last week, notice that sin there is singular. It's not plural. If it were plural, it would have a different meaning, a different context. What John is talking about here is not the sins of the people, all of the unlawful behaviors, all of the disruptive, dysfunctional, compulsive behaviors. He's talking about the sin, the basic human condition of the world. And if you think about it, this physical world and our ego, that voice that continues to talk to us ourselves in our heads constantly, which is a byproduct of our self-awareness, our self-awareness is what creates that voice. You know, your pets don't have that voice in their head. They're not self-aware. The physical world with everything that we can see, touch, taste, smell with our instruments, the voice in our head, that sense of us as a separate being from everyone and everything else masks the underlying and essential unity of everything under the surface. It's back to Adam and Eve. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will surely die. You will die to the unity, to the connection that was there before you were self-aware. The world is set up this way. I don't know why, but it masks the unseen world. It masks the essential unity, the love that is the genesis, the logos, the reason that everything came into being. That is the basic human condition, that we live in a world that looks all broken up into separate things, that we live in a world in which we can get lost, that we won't get the things we need, that we can be abandoned and forgotten. And all of the behavior that flows out of that base of fear, for as long as we continue to play by fear's rules, that behavior, those actions, will continue to be separating, disconnecting, relationship-killing, they will continue to take us down the path of separation and disunity, which is the definition of sin. The Lamb of God is going to take that away. How is he going to do that? By showing us what love really looks like in a fearless state. To move forward fearlessly, even knowing what's going to happen. But as Jesus said, no greater love than a man lay down or a person lay down his life for his friends. To do that, to show that, to model that, is going to be our first step toward understanding that there is another way to live life. We don't have to play by fear's rules. There's another playbook that we can enter into if we really want to. So the Lamb is taking away, showing this unity of love laying down life, his life, and unmasking all the things that we can't see. But let's understand that in doing this, he's not laying down his life in order to change God's mind about us, that God thinks badly of us, that God is separated from us. He's not trying to change God's mind. He's revealing God's mind, revealing the love, revealing the unity that is already there. God's mind doesn't need to be changed. He's already made his choice about us and has since the beginning of time. Lamb of God. Now, there's this idea of the lifted up one. 
John 3:14 to 15 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life This is Jesus speaking What is he talking about What is the illusion that he's talking about Now if you all know in Exodus this is a more obscure story so many of you probably don't after Moses gets the, uh, the Israelites out uh, of Egypt and they're traveling through the desert, it doesn't take long before the people start to complain and they start to blame Moses for their situation. Why did you bring us out into the desert to die? You know, at least at home we had our garlic and our leeks and, you know, we were slaves and we had to make bricks, but at least we had our food, we had a roof over our head and here we don't have anything. They're complaining, they're moaning, they're angry, they're bitter. And finally God just, has had enough with them. And so he sends what the scripture calls fiery serpents into their camp. And these serpents bite the the people, of course, and many are dying because of the bites. And the people realize that they have crossed a line with God and they're being punished now. So they run back to Moses and say, we're sorry, we're sorry, we didn't mean it. And, you know, please help us, help us. And so the Lord tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, a bronze snake, the image of the thing that was afflicting the people, and put it up on a staff and hold it up in front of the people in the camp. And everyone who looks at the staff with the serpent will be healed. That's a pretty crazy story. What's going on there? You know, all he has to do, and why make an image of the same thing that was afflicting you so that you look at it and you're healed? Doesn't that, <laughs> makes no sense, right? What is, what is, what's going on here? Once again, if we look just at the surface, the literal, it's just a story. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we kind of dismiss it. Dismiss it. We think of it as some sort of ancient superstition, you know, and, and then we just let it go. But think about what's really going on here on the deeper level. If we can look at this from a midrashic point of view, we can see that by looking at the consequences of your actions, the place that your actions have taken you, by considering those deeply, it can start to give you a sense of the personal responsibility that is the first step toward repentance. What the Jews called teshuva. Teshuva was the remorse that leads into a change of direction. It's the realization that your consequences are a direct result of your own actions, that there's nobody to blame but yourself, and it changes things. To have that right in front of you, to see the consequences of your action put right there, is the first step toward moving in new directions. So really, literally, to look at those things is the first step toward healing. Now, is that spoken of? Is that explained in the scripture? Absolutely not. But if we're going to try to make sense of what's going on here, what are we going to do? And it's interesting that, that doctors today have taken the caduceus from this story, from the, the Greek Asclepius, uh, that idea of the, the cross serpents on the, on, the, uh, on the cross beam. What Jesus is doing is doing a midrash here. He's saying, just as Moses lifted up the serpent to show the people the consequences of their own actions, the Son of Man is going to be, need to be lifted up. And in the same way, What are we looking at when we look at the crucified one? What are we looking at when we look at Jesus on the cross if we really consider what's going on there? 
Did God put Jesus there? Did God kill Jesus in order for a mechanism to be enacted that would allow him to change his mind about us? To allow him to open up a door that he had previously shut? Especially because of the sin of Adam and Eve that's now just genetically being transmitted to the rest of us? Does that sound logical? Does that sound commonsensical? Does that sound like the kind of love that Jesus is talking about? Who put Jesus on the cross? Well, the scripture is really clear. If you look a little deeper, we did. We put Jesus on the cross. The death of a completely innocent man, the death of someone who does nothing but show complete and perfect love in life, is a direct result of the sin of the world, playing by fear's rules, being threatened by things that we don't understand, the ignorance, the fear, the violence. But to put that up in front of us, to see the consequences of what we are doing, not even realizing it. What does Jesus say? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. We don't even know that we're doing this. But we are. And this is what the scripture is trying to get across. And Jesus makes that connection from the ancient to his day. Just as this I will be lifted up. And the same function, the same consequence, the same healing can take place as we start to understand what is really going through here. It's really all about blame if you think about it. We're blaming. We're always looking for a way to to blame, to discharge our own pain, our own discomfort. And that leads us straight to the third image, the image of the scapegoat. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the scapegoat, but Paul at 2 Corinthians 5.21, he writes, he made him, in other words, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right, there's another one. What in the world is Paul talking about? God made Jesus sin in order that we may become righteous in him. Jesus made sin on our behalf. This is an allusion to the scapegoat. Now, Jews would have understood this. Jews would know because this is a central part. Have you all heard of Yom Kippur? Okay, Yom Kippur is the annual day of atonement. It's a festival, one of the major festivals of Judaism. The Torah, the ancient law, says that on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of ritually atoning for the sins of the people you know, throughout the year, there is going to be three animals that need to be brought to the horns of the altar. The first was a bull, and the, the chief priest would sacrifice the bull as an atonement for his sins and the sins of his family. And then they would do something interesting. They would draw lots. They would get two unblemished he-goats male goats that looked as closely as possible to each other, like identical twins, and they would cast lots over these two. And one of them would, by lot, would be cast to be for the Lord, and the other was for Azazel, is the word that they used. Azazel. They figured, the Jews at that time, that God spoke through lots, and so he was deciding which goat was which. And so the goat that was for the Lord was slaughtered at the altar to atone for the sins of the people. The other goat 
And there's controversy about most everything in the Bible, but this word azazel, no one really knows what it means anymore because Hebrew is only written with consonants. So where you put the vowels is kind of up to you. And if you put the vowels in different places, it can mean different things. But the two major contenders for what azazel means is a steep, rocky place, a hard place, which was the destination of where this goat was going to go. And the other is ez azal, which means the goat that was sent away which is where we get from William Tyndale in 1503 in his English translation, the escape goat, the goat who escapes, which we shorten to scapegoat. Scapegoat is just the goat that was sent away. The first goat is killed to atone for the sins of the people. The second goat, the sins of the people, are conferred upon the goat itself. And tradition says that a scarlet thread was tied around one horn, and then the goat is driven out of the city into the wilderness and left there. And symbolically, the sins of the people are leaving. Take a look at uh, Leviticus 16.21. Then Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So what's going on here? You know, Jewish scholars have had a hard time with this because their reasoning is you can't transfer sins away from a person. Torah is absolutely clear. There must be teshuva. There must be repentance. There must be the acceptance of personal responsibility or there is no reconnection with God. And yet here is this practice of just transferring the sins onto this goat. What's going on here? How are we supposed to understand this? I want to read you a little bit from a, um, an article by uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs. He was the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, and he's a great thinker. Just the, the stuff that he writes is amazing. But he's tackling this, the scapegoat, this understanding Why two goats rather than one? The simplest answer is that the Torah specifies the high priest's service on Yom Kippur was intended to achieve two objectives and not just one. On this day of atonement, he's quoting from from now um, Leviticus, on this day of atonement, on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. So normally all that was aimed at was atonement kapara in in Hebrew, no longer being legally guilty or liable for punishment. On Yom Kippur, something else was aimed at, cleansing, purification, tehara in, in Hebrew. Atonement is for acts, things that we do. Okay? Purification is for persons, for the people themselves. Sins leave stains on the character of those who commit them. And these need to be cleansed before we can undergo catharsis and begin anew. The scapegoat was sent away carrying the impurity, the stain. Now clearly this is psychological. A moral stain is not something physical. It exists in the mind, in the emotions, the soul. It's hard to rid oneself of the feelings of defilement when you have committed a wrong, even when you know it has been forgiven. Some symbolic action seems necessary. It's easier to feel that defilement has gone if we have had some visible representation of its departure. We feel cleansed once we see it go somewhere, carried by something. This may not be rational, 
but neither are we most of the time. That is the simplest explanation. That's the pishat. Okay, that's the simplest literal explanation. The sacrificed goat represented kapara, atonement. The goat sent away symbolized tahara, cleansing of the moral stain. But perhaps there's something more and more fundamental this, to the symbolism of the two goats. Now what's he going to do? He's going to midrash for us. He's going to look deeper into the text. He just told you what the simplest explanation from the surface would be, but going deeper, he says, the birth of monotheism. Remember that Abraham and the Jews were the first ancient people in the area to practice monotheism. Everybody else was polytheistic, had many gods. All right? The birth of monotheism changed the way people viewed the world. In polytheism, moral elements, each of which is represented by a different god with a different personality, clash. In monotheism, all tension between justice and mercy, retribution and forgiveness is located within the mind of one God. With this single shift, external conflict between separate forces is reconceptualized as internal, psychological conflict between separate forces. Monotheism relocates conflict from out there to in here. In most cultures, the moral life is fraught with the danger of denial of responsibility. Can I get an amen on that? It wasn't me. Or if it was, I didn't mean it. Or I had no choice. All of our excuses. The supreme expression of the opposite, the ethic of responsibility, is the act of confession. It was me. And I offer no excuses. Merely admission, remorse, and a determination to change. Teshuva, right? Perhaps then, the significance of the two goats, identical in appearance, yet opposite in fate, is simply this, that they are both us. One we offer to God, but the other we disown. We let it go out into the wilderness where it belongs. As Azal, the goat has gone. We do not deny our sins. We confess them. We own them. We let go of them. Let our sins that might have led us into exile be exiled. Let the wilderness reclaim the wild. Let us strive to stay close to God. Now this creates a supreme irony. The scapegoat of Yom Kippur is the precise opposite of the scapegoat as we generally know it and use that term. Scapegoating, as we use the word today, means blaming someone else for our troubles. The scapegoat of Yom Kippur existed so that this kind of blame would never find a home in Jewish life. We do not blame others for our fate. We accept responsibility. Those who blame others, defining themselves as victims, are destined to remain victims. Those who accept responsibility transform the world because they have learned to transform themselves. The scapegoat, really, it looked at this way, is the deep recognition that someone always pays the price for our sins, for our fear-based choices and behavior, the fear-based actions of our lives. The scapegoat can help us to see, again, our responsibility, just as the lifted up one does, and the determination to change, to move in new directions, how is this deeper understanding of the scapegoat going to help us see Jesus on the cross? 
if Jesus really is becoming sin on our behalf, what was it that he actually became? What does it look like to become sin, to become the sin of the world? If you really think about it, Jesus on the cross, he became the sum of all our fears. Everything that we most deeply fear, existentially fear, Jesus became on that cross. He became nakedness. We sanitize and put a loincloth around our crucifixes, but the Romans killed their prisoners in the nude on the cross. He became nakedness. He became exposure. He became vulnerability. He became failure. He became ridicule. He became abandonment. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He says from the cross. He became rejection. He became pain, agony. And he became death. Did I miss anything on that list of our basic fears in life? We fear not being enough. We fear not having enough. We fear not ever being connected. We fear being exposed for who we really are. All these things Jesus becomes on the cross. He willingly accepted everything that we fear. Everything that separates us and disconnects us. He became that sin. Not the behaviors, but the state of being separated. The state of being vulnerably human. And because he was unjustly accused, because he was innocent, what was his reaction? Now, what would be your reaction if you're accused unjustly? When you have been accused unjustly, hasn't every one of us in this room been accused unjustly? And what was your reaction? Outrage. Justification. Let me tell you my side of the story. Yeah, but he did this and she did that and blaming everything else. What did Jesus do as scapegoat? Nothing. He blamed no one back. He didn't try to justify himself. He stopped the cycle of violence that was perpetrated on him that has been going since Cain and Abel all the way through history and Jesus stops it in its tracks. Brene Brown is brilliant at this idea of blame and shame and other... She says that blame is really understood as a means for discharging discomfort and pain. Isn't that a perfect way of... Blaming is a way of discharging discomfort and our pain. We take our discomfort and our pain and we put it on to somebody else. And what she says is that we would rather blame someone or even ourselves rather than having no one to blame. Because when no one's to blame, what do you do with that? Isn't that the whole problem of evil, you know? Why does God let these things happen? We blame God. Let's blame somebody because if nobody's to blame and it just seems sort of random, we have absolutely no control and we crave control. Blame gives us some control back. I have someone I can put this on. I can let this go over here. But what she says is that blame has an inverse relationship with accountability. The more you blame, the less accountable you are. The more you blame, the more you stay a victim. The more that you take no personal responsibility for anything that's going on. 
and accountability, it's frightening for us because it's a vulnerability, a vulnerable process. What does accountability, accountability look like? It means being in an intimate enough relationship with another person that they see you for what you really are. And they have permission to talk to you, to tell you when you're going too far right or left. They have the permission from you and the ability, because they know you well enough, because you've let them see you, to help guide you, and vice versa. The perceived risk of a relationship like that is way too much for most of us on this planet. We'd rather blame. We'd rather push it out. I can't take it into myself. That's too painful. But Jesus as scapegoat, not scapegoating anyone else, shows us the way to the Father, shows us the way to the salvation. And what is this way? What does it look like? Four quick things to take a look at. Back on your inserts. The first one is relationship over law. Matthew 5.21 You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is saying it's not enough just to keep the form of the law. That the relationship is internal. As soon as we have that angry thought, as soon as we think that judgment on another person, the relationship is already broken. The relationship is already compromised. It's not enough just to be right before the law. In one-on-one relationships, it's 100%. It's not 50%. The scales don't balance. The scales come out of balance in favor of the other. If we want to understand what this way to Father looks like, the only way to the Father, as Jesus said, Nonviolence, non-retribution. Jesus is a scapegoat who doesn't scapegoat at Matthew 5, just a couple of verses later at 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now you can look all day for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Bible and you won't find it because it's not there. This was the law of retribution. This was the, the, the lex talionis that was actually first uh, stated and legislated in Assyria. But it was the basic law of the Middle East, the way that they operated. And actually, it was a kindness because at least it limited retribution to what was proportional to the crime. If you just left it up to the clans, to the tribes, and you did something to me, we do this to you, and then we do this to you, and before you know it, everybody's dead. Hatfields and McCoys. But to limit it to proportional, you take my eye, I take your eye. Right? You take my tooth, I take your tooth. This is the way that they laid it out. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not enough. If he lived by that premise, how would he have behaved as he was going to Golgotha? Very differently, right? He would have given, been giving back everything that he got. Every blow would be, have been given back. Every insult would have been given back. That's the behavior of one of the thieves that is crucified with him, but it's not Jesus' behavior. It's not enough just to be right retributively. Everything needs to go. 
Loving the enemy, Matthew 5.43. You've heard it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How hard is this for us? The people that we don't get, that we don't like, the people that look different, have different culture, they smell funny, they cook weird food. More than that, the ones who are actively hurting us scamming us, stealing our identity, doing the things that are happening all throughout this world, the news that we hear, the atrocities that are going on. How do we find it in our heart to love the terrorist, to love the child rapist, to love the murderer, to love the people that maybe you consider are ruining your schools, ruining your child's education, the one who dinged your door with their door in the parking lot, it really doesn't matter. That's the enemy because it's not the person for whom love just wells up and flows out. It's the one that there's a resistance. But Jesus says it's not enough just to love those who love you. If you do that, what have you done? Can you find it in your heart to love the one that you don't like? What does that look like? And then forgiveness. Matthew 18:21. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, "Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to 7 times?" <laughs> now 7 is a perfect number, the number of completion of spiritual perfection. And so Peter thinks that's a pretty good number. Is it 7 times? And Jesus says to him, "I do not say to you up to 7 times, but up to 70 times 7 times." And if you take perfection times perfection times 10, which is the number of eternity or millennium and lots of different things symbolically, what you're basically saying is you're going to forgive forever and a day. There's never going to be a time that you stop forgiving. And story after story that Jesus tells, parable after parable, amplifies this idea that forgiveness is just a state of being. It's not an act that we do or don't do. It's who we are. It's who we become. What I want you to notice is that each one of these four is set up in a certain formula. This is the way you were taught. This is the way the world works. Okay? This is the way your mindset and everything in your life tells you that life should be lived. But I'm going to tell you something different. I'm going to show you a way that will blow your mind. I'm going to show you a way that is so utterly different than that that it will take you somewhere you've never been before. I'm calling it kingdom. Call it whatever you want. But it is this state of being, this quality of life that we can have when we start living this way, the only way to a father who looks like this. You've seen me, that means you've seen the father. And the only reason I look like father is because I live this way. Jesus was doing this all his life to everyone that he was in relationship with. And now he goes to the cross. And he does exactly the same thing. The cross is the ultimate expression of these values, these principles for choosing, placed in the ultimate and most extreme circumstances of a horrendous and humiliating and excruciating death. And Jesus never wavers. To the end, his seven sayings on the cross bear all of this out. This is exactly 
who Jesus is. An entirely different way of looking at life, of looking at relationship. I'll read you just a little bit from Rohr and then we'll close. Richard Rohr writes, I believe the message of the crucified Jesus is a statement about what to do with your pain. It's primarily a message of transformation and not a transaction to open the gates of heaven unless you're talking about being drawn into heaven right now. For some unfortunate reason, Christians have usually used Jesus as a mere problem solver, one who would protect us personally from pain later. That kept us in a very small, self-centered world. The big loss was that we missed Jesus' message of how to let God transform us and our world here and now. We are generally inclined to either create victims of others or play the victim ourselves, both of which are no solution but only perpetuate the problem. Jesus instead holds the pain, even becomes the pain, until it transforms him into a higher state, which we rightly call the risen life. The crucified and resurrected Jesus shows us how to do this without denying, blaming, or projecting pain elsewhere. In fact, there is no elsewhere. Jesus is the victim in an entirely new way because he receives our hatred and does not return it. Nor does he play the victim for followers to avenge his murder for his own empowerment. We find no self-pity or resentment in Jesus. He never asks his followers to avenge his murder. He suffers and does not make others suffer because of it. He does not use his suffering and death as power over others to punish them, but as power for others to transform them. Jesus is the forgiving victim, which really is the only hope for our world, because most of us sooner or later will be victimized on some level. It is the familiar storyline of an unjust and often cruel humanity. The cross is a message of healing for the violence of humanity, and we tragically turned it into the violence of God, who we thought needed a sacrifice to love us. Jesus became the scapegoat to reveal the universal lie of scapegoating. Jesus became the sinned against one to reveal the hidden nature of scapegoating and so that we would see that there is no such thing as redemptive violence. Violence doesn't save. It only destroys in both the short and the long term. Jesus replaced the myth of redemptive violence with the truth of redemptive suffering. He showed us on the cross how to hold the pain and let it transform us rather than pass it on to the others around us. By going to the cross as he did, Jesus is literally taking away the sin of the world. This existential, fear-based mindset, experience. By showing us how to move from a base of fear to a base of love, by showing us it is actually possible in human form, Jesus literally is the Lamb of God, the scapegoat, the lifted up one. The cross is Jesus' ultimate refusal to play by fear's rules. And it's also the invitation for us to find our salvation by doing exactly the same thing. Let's pray. Father, this is radical stuff. We might need permission to think that it's okay to think this way. 
Give us permission in our hearts to be able to think in new directions, to find out what is true and what is not. And that if this is not true, that we are quickly redirected to what is actually true. Show us who you are more and more in our lives, Lord. Show us the nature of your love, the depth of your love, the absolute nature of your love. And let that guide us where we need to go. Let that be the principles for our choices that will take us in the direction of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Just thank you. From the depths of our hearts, thank you for the relationship and the love and the caring that you shower on us every single moment. Never let us forget that we can only love you or anyone else because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.